Have you ever thought about taking a full year to travel around the world to see these amazing destinations, to have a trip that will give you memories that will last you a lifetime? For a lot of people, it is a fantasy. It's something that they've always dreamed about and it's definitely a bucket list kind of trip. But with the right planning and preparation, you can make that a reality. In today's episode, we talk about this and a few other amazing destinations like Columbia and Austin, Texas. And we dive into some of the important details of traveling the world and what to expect abroad. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome to the Nomadic Foodist Show, a podcast for food-obsessed travelers. My name is Chris, your host, and I help people discover amazing food all around the world. Today, I interview Dave Lee, who is the blogger behind Feastio.com. He has traveled around the world a couple times over, been to over 66 countries, and is a seasoned blogger. In fact, if you've probably Googled best restaurants in a certain city, you've probably seen his article somewhere along the way. He's eaten at some amazing restaurants, and we kind of talk about his travel experiences, and what it was like to do a full year of travel, why he started traveling, and then we kind of dive into some of the details of when he lived in Columbia and now living in Austin, Texas, what the food and barbecue is like there. We jump around to a bunch of different topics, and we have this mutual love for Anthony Bourdain's shows and his influences on us, so we talk about a lot of fun different details. So, Without further ado, here is my interview with Dave from Feastio.com. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for our talk and all the adventures I'm just so excited to hear about. Uh, let's start off with an introduction first. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your blog. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here as a fan of the podcast. My name is Dave Lee, and I have two blogs at the moment. GoBackpacking.com, which is my adventure travel blog that dates back to 1999. And uh, my newer project, Feastio.com, which is my food blog that I began in 2018, but really started working on in earnest in 2019. Wow. Okay. So you have been blogging for a very, very, very long time and travel has seems like it's been a really integral part of your life. Like, What made you start the adventure uh, travel blog? Well, that goes back to college, my senior year of college. My best friends and college roommates, they were planning on backpacking in Europe after graduation. And I didn't like the idea of being left out of that experience. So even though it wasn't my idea at the time, I got on board really quickly and embraced the opportunity uh, to spend a summer in Europe after college. Um, that was my first time backpacking, first time staying in hostels. Actually, aside from college, really the first time traveling and, and being, on, being out kind of in the world on my own. Uh, so it was a real learning experience for me. And it really set the stage for me to begin Go Backpacking, um, which was based on my uh, written travel diary, essentially, yeah. that I had during that trip. Wow. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm actually really jealous because uh, I never did like a backpacking trip when I was like younger. And 
I I hear about those sort of things. I didn't even know that was even a possibility. And sometimes when you're when you're young, you don't quite realize the opportunities in front of you. And so many people are into backpacking now. I mean, do you think it's still a good idea for people to like take that large chunk of time, or even maybe do it a gap year from college and and like doing some backpacking, exploring the world? Absolutely. I I think it's. Um... For me personally, it's been a huge part of my growth uh, as a human being. And i that's part of what's motivated me from the beginning to put my experiences on, on the internet, which in 1998, 99 involved teaching myself HTML so I could put oh, up the website. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, the yes. beginning stages of the internet. <laughs> you teach yes. yourself. Hand, hand coding. Um, goodness. I, I didn't really. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't really a big coder. I did the bare minimum to get my stories on on the internet back then. Um, But blogging has made it so much easier. uh, And that's uh, really why I embraced it starting uh, in 2007. Um, I had stopped working on my website for a five-year period just because it wasn't easy to do back then. Uh, and then I, I picked it up once I discovered WordPress and, and how easy it had become to publish online. Yeah, super, super simple. And with you doing the the blogging thing and, and now you have Feastio, like what made you what prompted you to start sharing food and the restaurants and recommendations and the things that you eat online? So um, where to begin with that question? <laughs> I yeah <laughs> I in the, in the 2000s, I had become a, a fan of Anthony Bourdain, reading Kitchen Confidential and The Cook's Tour and watching his early TV shows on the Food Network um, and the Travel Channel. And so watching him combine travel and eating these interesting foods really got me interested in, in doing the same and following in his footsteps in some degree. And so I had a, a grand trip around the world that I had planned. Um, I was going to quit my job and sell my belongings and blog about it as I was doing it. And that began at the end of 2007. And um, and so as a part of that trip, I, I covered or I wrote about food at times, uh, although it wasn't my focus, um, but it did kind of start I did start to kind of dabble in it a little bit. Um, I was just traveling from country to country and constantly being exposed to new cuisines in the places, you know, where they were originally from. And so that was just a really wonderful opportunity. And it really spoiled me because I'm, uh, you know, unlike, you know, in the U S where you might have to search around for the best Indian food in a city, uh, or you may not even have the opportunity to try Cambodian food. Uh, when you're backpacking on a big trip like that, you can spend a few weeks or months uh, in a country and really kind of get to know their cuisine and their foods and their culture uh, firsthand. Yeah. For me, Anthony Bourdain was the big influence for sure. When he died. That actually was like the one celebrity like death that actually like, wow, like that, that made me feel something. Cause most of the time with singers or actors to me, eh, it's not, 
wasn't that big of a deal, but Anthony Bourdain, goodness, he's, he really is one of the reasons why I started to eat, eat more adventurously and try certain things like sea urchin, for example, is, is, was a food that Anthony Bourdain just like raved about. I'm like, okay, if Anthony Bourdain loves it, then it's worth trying at least. So I've eaten sea urchin and loved it like ever since. <laughs> and, and it's because of one of those things that he did. And I don't know, for me, he was just unapologetically himself. And that was inspirational for me in a lot of ways, even like really now to just be myself in this online space and when, when I travel and do those sort of things. What, um, what's one of the things that Anthony Bourdain did that really pushed you forward or maybe like triggered something to like eat something or to do something adventurous that you wouldn't have done otherwise? Oh gosh, there's there's many many um, foods yeah. that I ate on that trip around the world that I wouldn't have eaten had had I not um, seen his shows and and I kind of wanted to live like kind of have these food adventures. Um, one of one of the things I was doing to get some reader engagement as I was traveling and blogging about it was I asked people to dare me to do things. <laughs> and if I, you know, accepted, I would do my best to, to complete the dare. I would write a blog post and then collect a reward. You know, it might be $20 or something like that that covers the cost of what I did. Uh, and I had a, a little over a dozen dares on my trip. Uh, and some of them were food related. And, you know, you might be able to imagine that someone's wanting <laughs> yeah. to really challenge me. They're going to pick something that doesn't sound too appetizing. So I would say the most extreme dare that I got and the most extreme food I've eaten was to eat dog. And that Ooh. was um, something that a reader suggested I do in Vietnam. But I did not go to Vietnam on my trip around the world. Uh, however, I did I did go to Cambodia, and I was able to, through a guide that I had hired, find a restaurant that specialized in selling dog. Oh, no. How was that I experience? Know. It was interesting. It, it was certainly something I never would have sought out on my own. Um, yeah. The, I remember the, specifically my motorbike guide, who I had hired and spent two days with, um, he specifically said he didn't like dog. But another thing that I remember, and I took a, a picture of this gentleman, the owner of the restaurant, he had the the biggest smile on his face. And, and he's holding this like uh, big uh, metal, uh, deep metal dish of dog meat. And he seemed so proud of his restaurant. And yeah. I imagine he was kind of tickled that there was a foreigner in it because <laughs> yeah. this is definitely a locals only kind of place. This is not, you know, on the tourist trail. And, uh, and so I did try the meat um, is prepared two different ways. And I had a really hard time with it, even though um, I was in a place that I knew, you know, they kind of specialized in it. I was told that the, the dogs are farmed, which, you know, you, I know we have attachments to dogs because we love them and have them as pets. Um, but how is that different than cow? You know, cows, mm -hmm. cattle that's um, raised for us or chickens or any other of the animals. So uh, I 
kind of tried to detach myself a little bit, but it it was hard. It's not something I'd want to do again. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I I won the dare. I collected the money and I wrote about it. So. I like that idea. That's actually really smart to to do like the dare situation. Oh man. But man, the the dog, I'm not sure if I could. I, I mean, thinking about it, I'm sh- I'm sure I could try it once to see what it's like. I don't know. It's a tough situation. I love dogs so much. It's such a hard thing when they're when they're pets and you're so close to your pet. You're like, "Oh no. I mean, I mean my baby dog." No. You know. <laughs> I, I don't know, know where goes there. <laughs> But I think I could try it because it's it can be a cultural thing that I don't know you, you kind of want to try it once to experience. So I get it there. I just haven't had the chance yet. I've never actually seen it, even throughout Southeast Asia. I actually have never seen it on a menu. I'm sure if I sought it out, I could find it, but I don't know. Oh, kind of tough. Wow. Okay, adventurous eater for sure. Um, was there maybe something that somebody dared you to eat or something that you've eaten that you weren't expecting to taste really good, but ended up being just like absolutely amazing. I guess I would say um, another kind of on the extreme side of things that I tried that um, I thought was, was fine was um, in South Africa. I was, I was given a dare to eat a smiley, which is basically like a sheep's head. And they're um, common in townships. Townships are kind of poor communities. Um, they can be quite large. The one that, that I went to um, near Johannesburg is called Soweto. And I think a million people live there. Um, so um, very large community, although um, uh, it's a poor community. And um I was doing a guided trip uh, that day, guided tour. It was just me and like a few other people in a minivan with our tour guide. And I asked the tour guide if it was possible to get a smiley. And he was definitely surprised to hear this. I don't think he gets that kind of a request from his his customers very often, but he made it happen. And basically he found a place that was selling the, the sheep's heads uh, it's like a Sunday afternoon or something. Um, and he waited in line, or he may have paid to go to the head of the line because there was a line of people waiting to get this from someone, what seemed like someone's front yard. And uh, he brought it back to the van and unwrapped it on the kind of the, the armrest between the two front seats. And there it was, a sheep's head, <laughs> and like wrapped up in some plastic and newspaper. Oh, and man. it looked it 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 looked exactly like a cooked sheep's head. <laughs> and it was just it was just a very surreal moment because the other other tourists on the you know that were with us were like, "What is going on here?" And I was preparing myself to eat some of this sheep's head. Uh, and the driver who, who liked sheep said, offered me the eyeball and he said it was his favorite part, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, um, I guess I had seen too many episodes of fear factor on TV and <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I could not bring myself to try that part, but I did try some of the cheek or it might've been the tongue. Um, I'm not, I can't recall for sure. And, and it was fine. You know, um, once you get over, you know, the fact that you're looking at an animal head, like the meat on it can be quite good and, and tastes normal. So 
I think that was uh, an eye-opening experience for me. And it was, it was fun too. something completely yeah. different. Completely different. I love head meat actually. So I'm, uh, I would love that sort of thing. One of my favorite types of tacos are, you know, cabeza. So the head tacos that I had in Mexico city were just like phenomenal. And I like, I love cheeks, like Korean barbecue. If you find a really good place, they'll have, you know, the, the pork jowl that they they cook up to with like korean barbecue it's like my favorite cut on on any sort of animal is pork cheeks love it love it so much so um kind of jealous sounds delicious actually for me (laughs) but uh but yeah so so you've been traveling for a long time but what um was there like an aha moment that you had on one of your trips where you really just like okay it came all together like i really want to do this as often and as much as possible for the rest of my life. That was definitely my experience backpacking in, in Europe. Um, I just fell in love with it. And actually, um, my friends that who I went went on the trip with, whose idea it was, they went home early. They, for whatever reason, you know, traveling through Amsterdam and Prague and and. Venice was, I, I don't know, not their thing. And so they went home early and I had another five and a half weeks to travel on my own. And that that's like the training wheels. I started with training wheels and then they fell off and I was just on my own in Europe. And I just really loved that experience, even though it had periods of loneliness or I, you know, I was feeling like I was completely on my own. Um, just that sense of movement and going from one destination to the next and i had this huge let's go europe guidebook that i had with me at the time and i just look back on that with a lot of you know nice memories of sort of kind of just growing a lot in that just one summer and it it's it stayed with me even though in my 20s after i got back from that trip I, you know, got a job that didn't pay a lot. Um, I travel wasn't my biggest priority in part because I didn't have a lot of money to do it. And so there was a period of time in my 20s where I wasn't really going anywhere. Um, although that is when I kind of came up with this idea that I was going to eventually save up enough money to take a, a year-long mm-hmm. trip. Um, and that's really that trip was really that was my dream and it came true and uh and that really is where i turned blogging into a a career path how did you plan out that year-long trip i know that is like the dream for so many people to take a very long extended period of time to do that so how did you really get the gusto to do it how did you plan it and did did like everything go the way you hoped well, I um, this was really before social media, so in the, in yeah. the mid two thousand. So, especially in the United States, this was the idea of like quitting a, a, a good paying job. Because um, in my late twenties, my job was paying; I had a better paying job. Um, the idea of quitting that and leaving stability behind to go, you know, off and and bum around it was not really looked kindly upon it was more of i think a thing that europeans or australians did but not not people in the united states so 
I had to look for motivation. I had to look for people that were doing this. And I found it through message boards like the bootsandall.com message board, which was really popular at the time. And I just kind of looked for inspiration wherever I could, whether that was in books or the internet. And people that were taking trips like those already um, and may have had a blog about it. And that's kind of how I started. Uh, that's kind of what gave me the confidence that I could do it too. And then it was mostly about setting a, a dollar amount that I wanted to have saved that I felt like would be enough for me to feel confident leaving my job and belongings behind. Um, and I can't remember, but it was roughly $30,000. Um, it didn't start out that much, but um, my plans got more and more grandiose. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so it of course. Start out at like, <laughs> <laughs> it started out as like a smaller number, maybe $15,000. But uh, over time it grew because I wanted to just see so much of the, the world that I needed more money to do that. And so eventually it took five and a half years. Eventually I had paid off uh, credit card debt. I had um, basically saved up uh, a nest egg of money that I could use. And the dream was to then just travel to as many of the places I wanted to see as possible until the money ran out. And uh, I did that and it was, it was amazing. And I blogged the whole time. I set a goal to write one blog post per day, which was very aggressive. That is very aggressive. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But back then, the what qualified as like a, a blog post that was, you know, something people would want to read, wasn't nearly as in-depth as what you need to produce today to, to be competitive. So um it, you know, it was maybe like three or 400 words and a couple of photos that I uploaded from an internet cafe. Um, it was, is much, much more basic than what you see today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like back then, yeah, blog posts were, this is what I did today. Just like a few sentences or a few paragraphs. I remember. Yes. Jeez, I, like I was a teenager. What was it? Like they had different platforms too, like Zanga. That's makes me feel old just thinking about that was. Uh, like a blogging platform kind of thing where, yeah, you post up like your thoughts of the day. It was kind of, I don't know, ushering in part of that social media movement in the very beginning. So if you, if you know what Zanga is, anybody who's listening, then you're, you're, you're as old as me probably <laughs> or a little bit older. So, um, I remember that goodness. Um, if you can remember what was just like one really impactful memory from that first, like really big trip abroad that one year. I guess I want it to be a, a food memory uh, and I want to go back to Cambodia. I I had spent three months in Thailand and having an amazing time on the islands and eating lots of Thai food, which I was already a little familiar with. And then I took a bus into Cambodia and I, as I was exploring Cambodia, I, um, I, I met this tour guy that, that had taken me to the restaurant where I had tried the dog, dog meat. Um, but um, after the first um, first tour, he invited me to his home. And I was a little nervous about accepting. You know, I don't really know this person. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't really know Cambodia. Yeah. But um, I didn't get the sense he would take no for an answer. And he'd been really kind to me. And, you know, I enjoyed our, our first day together. 
And so I accepted and um, I went to his home and I basically had a home cooked Cambodian meal with him and his family. And what, what I really appreciated about it was how generous they were, um, even though it was a, you know, it was a two room house. He had eight children and a wife and the cooking area was basically the third ground underneath the house, which was elevated kind of on stilts or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I, I really felt like honored to be there and to have his wife cooking and she made curry stuffed frogs the first night. Um, oh yeah, man. That's, a, that's which, an ambitious dish right there for Americans. <laughs> Curry stuffed frog. All right. <laughs> yes. And I was conscious of, you know, how many people were in this family and I didn't want to take off. I literally did not want to take more than I could chew. I had tried frog legs back in the U S and I kind of knew what to expect with that. But, um, the whole like abdomen of the frogs were stuffed with like this curry paste. And I just, I didn't want to take a whole frog. Uh, so I was like trying to break off a leg and he just took the whole frog and put it on my plate. And oh. I was like, okay, I'm going to do the best I can with this. And do you remember if it was to your liking and was it like, how'd you deal with the meal? <laughs> I I think I had a hard time with it, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I, I made, I made an effort, but it, it was, it's just kind of like a culture shock. Maybe oh, if yes. I'm oh, eating yes. it repeatedly, I'm getting more used to it. But um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I was a really picky eater when I was a kid and super stubborn with my parents and not eating my vegetables and um, trimming the fat off of meat. I was very picky. And so... Um, some of that still comes up, I find, but I, I've tried to challenge it over the years um, and, you know, trying foods that are way outside of what I've experienced in the United States is part of that process. Wow. Okay. So picky eater turned now food blogger, <laughs> which is really cool to hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, like, how did you overcome some of those maybe food fears and anxieties if you were a picky eater when you were young? Like what, what happened for you to be a little bit more adventurous with your appetite? Uh, I think that it, it start, started to happen a little bit in the U.S. after I graduated college. I remember going out to eat lunch with some coworkers, and we went to a Thai restaurant. And it was actually the first time I had Thai food. Uh, it was Thai food was not something that my parents ate, so I didn't experience that until I was about twenty-two, um, and I instantly loved it and became a huge fan of, of Thai food and curries. Um, sushi, I also tried with a friend in my early twenties and didn't like it the first time. I think I had a hard time with the idea of eating raw fish, but the second time I tried it a few years later, I, I liked it and, and now I love it. And, uh, so I would say just sort of being introduced to different foods by friends and also, um, Having seen people, whether or you know whether it's Anthony Bourdain on TV or or others, um, trying different foods and, and sort of sharing those experiences, I found very inspirational for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually did a solo episode, and I talked about 
you know, being an adventurous eater, being adventurous at heart with the things that you try. And I'm actually glad you brought up some of these things because sometimes when you try something, you're, you may not like it, but I still tell people, try to give it a shot, you know, maybe a few years later, because I believe our palates are always kind of like developing. The more you eat, the more you try, the more things will all of a sudden be delicious for you out of nowhere. And it's, and you said that with sushi, it took you, it took you a little bit there to really like, like, like it and then like love it. And that can be some way for some foods. My wife is that way. Like when we first met, I took her to my favorite Korean restaurant and she did not enjoy Korean food very much at all. And I'm, I'm half Korean. So I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, that's kind of a bummer, but it wasn't like a deal breaker for me, you know, not a big deal. And then, and then like years later we tried and it's like, she can't get enough of it. Like now it's like one of her favorite type of types of cuisines to eat. And we get it all the time. Whenever we travel, we have to find not an American restaurant, but a Korean restaurant. Every single city. It's like we have to eat some sort of Korean food while we're, you know, gone away from our favorite spots here in Denver. So it's just it's weird, right? Like how your your palate can just change over time. I definitely agree with that. And another example that comes to mind for me is oysters. I ah, yeah. Uh I, I had a little bit of exposure to raw oysters at happy hours with coworkers in the United States when I was living in Northern Virginia. Um, but those environments weren't really inspiring me to be adventurous. Whereas when I went to um, France on my trip around the world, I um, actually stayed with a, a French woman and her mom who I had met in South Africa. And they lived in Bordeaux and I, it, it was winter. So when we did a, a little trip to the coast, a place called Arcachon Bay, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, which is known for oyster farming and is actually um, a destination where Anthony Bourdain spent time as a, as a kid. Um, I went into an oyster shop with uh, the boyfriend of the woman who I was staying with. And it was just a tiny little shop. And we ordered like a half dozen oysters. Um, and I was thinking, well, if I'm going to like oysters, I'm going to like them in this environment. You know, in France, they're fresh. And, uh, you know, let's see how this goes. And I, you know, I took the first one and uh, I could taste the sea in, in that, you know, little slurp of the oyster. And the, the freshness, like I could taste like the salt water in it. And that I found very appealing. And maybe it was that I was in France too, but I, <laughs> yeah. we ordered more oysters. Good, and good. then I, I I became a bigger fan of them. I'm not a huge fan, but I enjoy them from time to time. And I think it's partly because I was, one, willing to keep trying something that I had tried before and not necessarily like. And also that, you know, the environment in which I was trying it um, played a part as well. Yeah. For oysters, um, I'm kind of the same way. I actually really, really do like oysters. But some people, man, they really, really, really love oysters where no matter the kind, no matter the size, they'll suck them down. For me, <laughs> I like, oh, I like the like, like smaller ones that are a little bit sweeter. 
I like that fresh, clean ocean taste, just like you mentioned. It's like the taste of the ocean when you eat it. That's the beautiful part, in my opinion, too, like of eating an oyster. And that's the appealing thing. It's the craziest experience. And I don't know, some people just, if it's a like an enormous oyster, sometimes I can't, I don't know, to me, that's too much. And sometimes they're too briny and I just can't enjoy it. So I'm not there yet either, you know, for, for some things. Like just because I like to eat a lot of food doesn't mean I can just eat whatever all, all the time. <laughs> Let me see. Sorry, I just I was just thinking about some oyster stuff. I just remember just the first time I had oyster was at like a buffet and it was like terrible. I, I don't know why I thought a buffet <laughs> oyster would have been the thing that, 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 that transported me to this, you know, delicious seafood bliss. But for some reason I tried, I'm like, nope, never again. And then, yeah, I tried them years later. All of a sudden, a friend was like, hey, you have to try these sort of oysters or East Coast. These ones are a little bit less briny, a little bit less fishy. And he kind of dressed it up with me with like some like uh, lemon juice, a little mignonette, sucked it down. And it was just phenomenal. I love I love oysters ever since. But <laughs> yeah, buffet oysters. Beware. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How much now from your experience traveling now for so long, I mean, like how much do you think it would cost for someone to save up for a one-year trip around the world in like modern times, in your opinion? Uh, that's, I feel like it's a really tough question. I, <laughs> yeah. It depends so much on the person's willingness to travel um, cheaply. You know, if someone is willing to stay in hostels and, you know, cheap bungalows in Thailand, for example, um, or they want to spend, they're willing to spend six months in India, a much less expensive country to travel in than, say, you know, Italy, then it's it's much less money. I, after I got back from my trip around the world, I, I published on Go Backpacking my entire um expenses for the whole trip i had kept i had kept written um notes on my expenses to like not the nearest penny but the nearest nickel it was very accurate and uh i put all that together in a spreadsheet and i put it on my blog and the comments were interesting they they kind of ran the gamut from people really thinking that I spent a ridiculous amount of money, you know, for how long I was gone, which was in the end 20 months to, you know, people just thinking that it was amazing that I was able to, to, to do that trip on what I, on what I spent. Um, so it really depends a lot on the person, on the destinations that they have in mind, how long they want to be gone. Um, and and the degree of comfort they want on their trip. So if you're willing to, you know, sleep on some thin mattresses, then you can be, you can potentially be gone a lot longer than if you prefer hotels that are, you know, going to be 50 or $100 a night. Well, let's say the person is very frugal. They're willing to be a budget traveler, get the backpack, stay in hostels, you know, eat you know, moderate meals, like what do you think would be the average now that's only to save up for just one year total nonstop travel, you think? Um, well, I, I mean, I guess based on my experience, I feel like in the twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars for yeah. for twenty countries, you know, traveling by air, you know, for some of that, not not all of it. Um 
and wanting to be able to do tours and and have you know fun experiences i i didn't want to spend five years planning and saving only to like feel too cheap to actually enjoy the places i was visiting so you know one of the things i did when i was in new zealand which was the second country i visited was i did a, a helicopter ride up franz joseph glacier uh because i I just thought that was really cool and I'd never been in a helicopter and so it was a little more expensive than having done like um, a glacier hike that's at, uh, you know, at the bottom of the glacier. But I, you know, I just enjoyed it much yeah. more, I think, yeah. because I got a helicopter ride out of it. <laughs> that sounds well. wonderful. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing for every traveler. They have to decide what's valuable to them. Like, what am I going to spend my money on? What is most important? So, because I've talked to other travelers. Um, the first one that comes to mind um, is Todd Smith. Um, he has a blog called Of Whiskey and Words. And he was on the podcast, I think, um, a year, year and a half ago. And we talked about for him, food is not the most important thing. Like he'll eat whatever when he travels. He's more of the adventure travel type, which is, you know, uh, whitewater rafting or, you know, going backpacking in, in these different countries and stuff and seeing all these great uh, sites um, in remote areas. So cool. He is okay with eating very cheaply and spending his time and money on those adventure experiences. Whereas me, I just want to spend all on food, you know, and, you know, and, and that's me. Like I have like, I rather go out for almost every single meal and try things and hang out with my wife at these different great, uh, you know, food venues and restaurants and street food and do that and moderately do tourist kind of things. Like the most tourist thing I've done recently, I'm trying to think was, was probably spending quite a bit of money to see the Taj Mahal when I was in India. I think that was like the most and that was a while ago too. Yeah. So most of my money goes towards food. So <laughs> and I think a lot of listeners probably the same sort of thing, but when you find something that's really exciting, a helicopter ride like that. Okay. I think I could spend money on that. I think that would be worth it. <laughs> I, um, I could definitely appreciate where you're coming from as I've gotten older and slowed down in terms of the, the amount of international travel I've been doing. Uh, and it, and for a long time, I was actually spending most of the year outside of the United States. I um, I was kind of switched gears and and wanted to slow down and focus more on um, eating and seeking out you know really great food in the places I go. And that's that to me, I felt like was going to be more sustainable as I continue to get older. Uh, I'm currently in my mid forties now, and so. Instead of um, making the adventure travel and the, the kind of the long-term backpacking, my focus, I've tried to slowly switch towards uh, cities and uh, dining. And I really love cocktail bars. So more of my money is now going to food and drinks when I travel. And I've been enjoying that just as much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I heard you mentioned for like the oyster story that you had met some people in you said africa is that right and then you spent time and then you in stayed with south africa okay in south africa and then you you spent time with them and stayed with them in france like how did that all happen because when you're a budget traveler like i'm still a budget traveler like how do you make those connections and then how did that all come about 
Well, certainly not planned. I I have two stories that I really like from that trip around the world where um, it's just kind of serendipity. The story meeting with the French couple, um, they were, they just happened to be staying at the same eco hostel as me. It was called Bulangula on South Africa's wild coast. And so it was kind of not that remote, but it's basically like a hostel on the coast. And then there's kind of some villages nearby. Um, and it, so it wasn't, we weren't like in the middle of the city or anything. So um, I got to know them over a couple of days and they uh, seemed interested in the fact that I was on this big trip around the world. And they said, well, if you come to Bordeaux, let us know and you can stay with us and we'll show you around. And I didn't even, I have plans to go to Bordeaux, but I'm like, there's an invitation there, I'm going. So I, you know, I told them right then and there that, okay, I'm going to come visit you because uh, I don't know, I just found that connection, um, something I wanted to follow up on. And another example would be when I was flying from Bangkok, um, I think it was Bangkok, Bangkok to uh, Cape Town, South Africa, when I was first arriving in on my, on that continent. Um, I had a layover in Doha, and I when I boarded that second leg um, to go to Cape Town, I was so excited because it was going to be my first trip to Africa, and I just had all these expectations. I was I was just very excited, and so I think I was talking a lot to the woman next to me. Uh, about all of this and um, she happened to be uh, an assistant to the president of Madagascar that was her job what? and she all split right. her time between <laughs> yeah, split her time between Madagascar <laughs> and um, and her home in Cape Town and I think she just saw how like enthusiastic I was and she offered uh, to host me um when I got there and I thought that was very kind of her. Um, I actually had a, a couch surf lined up. So I was staying with someone when I first arrived for a few nights, but then I left his, um, his home and I switched to her home and hung out with her and her friends for a few days. And they kind of showed me around a little bit as well. It's crazy what relationships you can build and the things that can happen if you Put yourself out there, talk to people, and say yes to these opportunities that just kind of pop up, serendipity, just kind of happening, just like you said. It's so great. And then you have these great stories. And that's where I think real adventure can kind of pop its head up in like a normal kind of trip. Even if you have a one-week vacation in a different country, a different city, in, in, in your own country even, just saying yes and, and saying yes to adventure and just taking those opportunities just to talk and meet with people. I, I've, goodness, we've, my wife and I have met some great people on like pub crawls, or we were in Kyoto, Japan, and we were just at a bar. And then we heard the people sitting next to us talking, you know, speaking English. And so we just all just started kind of talking. And then we spent the entire night like bar hopping, went to like four or five different places and ended up at a late night ramen place at the at the end of the night at like three o'clock in the morning, you know, slurping down noodles. And it was just a, such a great experience. And 
just to kind of connect with somebody, have fun with people you don't necessarily know. And then boom, next thing you know, you might be invited over to their, to their house when you go stay in that country. You know, it's like so cool that when those things happen. Yeah. I, I just really value those experiences. I, I can't say that it happens to me all the time. <laughs> it's yeah. actually the exception. <laughs> yeah. um, I can be kind of shy, but when I'm traveling on my own, I, I definitely feel more open and, and talkative. And um, when I have those opportunities, those invitations, I like to take people up on them. Oh yeah. Uh, people have offered like, Hey, you can stay with us when you're, when you're in the city. I'm like, be careful. I told him, like, be careful. I will 100% take you up on that offer. Don't, <laughs> don't just offer up a place to stay and not, and not expect me to come because yeah, like those things have happened. So I told him, like, be careful. And, um, goodness. So you've, you've had this blog, I mean, traveling around the world. I mean, why is it so important to you to share these adventures with people? Like what drives you to continually put out this content and inspire other travelers? I I definitely get there's definitely a little bit of selfishness to it because there's something about having the experiences and reporting, you know, and in this case it's reporting online uh, that I get enjoyment out of the, the, that actual just sort of producing, and uh, I I can't get enough of it. I wish I could produce more content than I do. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it, um, of seeing what I've, you know, seeing the stories I've put together, published on the internet and, uh, and just taking kind of uh, pride in that work and, and knowing that I'm working for myself and it's been 15 years now that I've been working for myself. So that's, that feels like an accomplishment and, and, um, a reason to just keep going with it because I've been able to do it this long. And then there's of course, you know, people that are reading and I want to um, encourage more specifically Americans to get passports and to travel and step outside of their comfort zone, try something that they didn't think that they could do and then see, see themselves doing it. Um, and I think travel is a great, uh, approach to do that um, versus trying to do challenge yourself in your home environment where you, it, I think it's easier to kind of escape the whatever it is that you might be challenging yourself with. Um, and I also feel like that there's, uh, I've found it very energizing to travel internationally and, and yes, there can be loneliness and, or you could get sick abroad and that, that really stinks. Uh, but by and large, my experiences have been extremely positive. And I feel like in some small way, getting more people to travel and, and see other cultures makes the world a better place. And so that's a big part of why I've continued to do it as well. It's um, encouraging other people to see the world and um, hopefully grow in the process. Yeah. I, I think it really is an active way to kind of grow and mature as a person in a very short period of time. When you go to a different country, you're in a whole new environment, completely unfamiliar, and you have to force yourself to overcome challenges, uncomfortable situations, 
and to make that trip work for you, even if it's in a familiar place, um, something that isn't like a big culture shock. Like for us Americans, like going over to like Canada or going over to parts of Western Europe, uh, it's not a, that huge of a culture shock, but you still have to put yourself out there and try new things and adventure into spots you don't know exactly where you're going. You don't know what's happening. And yeah, it's it's definitely a wonderful to see and to feel that growth when you travel. It's just addictive in, in a way. I'm, that's the way I feel like, oh my goodness, this is like the best feeling in the world when I can just step out of an airport and just like breathe in the air of a new place. It just smells so different than what I'm used to. I'm like, yes, yes. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's my kind of drug that I think it can be healthy. Yeah, <laughs> mine too. Yeah. I I definitely feel the addictive nature of travel. <laughs> you would think the you know you go to X number of countries and you would think, well, I'll you know by the time I get to fifty or sixty countries, well, I've had enough of travel. But it's the opposite. I feel like I want to go everywhere, and it, it there's always going to be some place that's that I'm curious about or excited to explore and so um that's part of why i felt like travel blogging as a career would be something that i could do the rest of my life i just kind of had this sense um 15 years ago as i was traveling and and sharing online that if i can find a way to make a living doing this i could do this for a very long time heck yeah heck yeah it's very very inspiring i love it i love it I want to now kind of transition to um, a few other things like uh, Columbia, for example. My wife and I, about a month ago, got back from a long stint through uh, Latin America. And our last country was Colombia, And we were in Bogota for five weeks. And I wish I could have seen more of the country because it's so diverse. Like how crazy diverse Colombia is with the terrain and everything and the food. And I wish I could have seen more. but when my friends ask me about Colombia, they're like, was well, there drugs everywhere? Are there cartels? They're like, was it dangerous? And I don't know. It was one of my absolute favorite food cities I've ever been to was, was Bogota. It, it just surprised me in all the crazy different ways. And when we were preparing for this interview, you said you lived in Colombia for like seven years. So let's, let's dive into that. Like, what was that like? And, and, and what, what year did you move there? Well, Colombia was the last country of my around the world. And so I arrived there in January 2009. I was running low on money, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to visit at least one country in South America before I had to go home. And so it was between Brazil and Colombia. And I remember thinking, well, Colombia is smaller, so I, maybe I can see more of the country. Um, and I know a little bit of Spanish from high school. So maybe that would be helpful. And Colombia is a country that people aren't going to, at least they weren't in 2009, talking about as a tourist destination. Um, People were still under the impression, you know, that, you know, it was the kind of Pablo Escobar years and the drug trafficking was so bad that it's a no-go zone, essentially. Um, And I had heard a tip from a backpacker, um, I guess a few years earlier when I was in Costa Rica and he had traveled through uh, South America and up Central America. And he had been to Colombia. And so I asked him, you know, what everybody would eventually ask me, is it safe? 
And he said, yes. And he said, it's a beautiful country. And I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind. And when the opportunity came to go, I went and I just quickly fell in love with uh, the country. And I actually decided I was going to stay for six months. So um, even though I was due to go home, I I basically spent the last six months of my trip um, becoming an expat in Colombia and, and really kind of starting to make friendships and get to know the culture and Okay, well then I oh, I made a mistake. Okay, so you're there for six months, not seven years. Sorry, I I, I confused some facts that I read. Okay, no, what you said initially was correct. I my first six months was on a tourist visa, and then when that ran out, I had to go back to the U.S. And then I returned to Colombia a year later, and uh, I would continue to spend six to nine months a year there. Um on tourist visas and eventually a business visa. But then I would spend a portion of the year traveling to other countries, uh, mostly in Latin America. So I, over the course of seven years, I spent three and a half in the country. Oh, wow. Okay. So how did, like, how did it feel to like live in, in Colombia and spend so much time there? And like, was the stigma of like all the drugs and everything, was that a real prevalent thing? Well, after, after, you know, kind of visiting 20 countries in a little over a year on my trip around the world, I, I think I just had this desire to get to know one place more deeply. And that place turned out to be Colombia. Um, it, it felt, um, I was a little nervous. Uh, I was very nervous about telling my parents that I was not coming home as planned because they were very much looking forward to seeing me after me being gone for so long. Um, But once I got over that hump, um, I really embraced being there and kind of living in the moment. And I actually started a blog specifically about uh, Medellin, Colombia, which is the city where I was living. Um, called medellinliving.com and that was me documenting my day-to-day experiences as this kind of naive american <laughs> backpacker who yeah. landed in the, the what was once the most dangerous city in the world and what's it like what am i seeing and experiencing um, and i found a quick audience with that that blog uh, because uh, clearly, there was interest or curiosity, and so I was one of the few bloggers that was sharing in English, you know, what it's like to be there as a tourist, essentially. Wow. Okay. So, did you ever feel like you were in danger or anything, or was it did you have any scary moments in Colombia at all? Well, I yes, I would definitely say <laughs> my Colombian friends. <laughs> They were very protective, you know, they, they certainly didn't want any, you know, me to get into any trouble. Um, I went, so in Medellin, every year they had a very big festival, the flower festival called Korea de las Flores. It's a week-long party um, and lots of parades. One of the parades they did back then that they don't do anymore is a horse parade called La Cabalgata, and it involves people people basically on horseback, thousands of people on horseback, riding through the city, drinking alcohol as they do, 
and it's and then people coming out to kind of watch the whole parade so it's it's a lot of horses a lot of horse poo a lot of drinking yeah very much a party <laughs> atmosphere <laughs> and um and i was there with uh colombian friends and one of them specifically warned me you know keep an eye on your phone i had a blackberry at the time and um she asked me it like it felt like every few minutes because she was worried about pickpockets and i you know i took my phone out at one point to like message a friend of mine and say how amazing this parade was and and i put it back in my pocket and then she asked me a few minutes later if i had my phone and i checked and it was gone someone had pickpocketed me and i had no idea so that was <laughs> that was oh, a surprise no. um <laughs> It, it 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 in retrospect it, i mean it hurt a little financially cuz i went out and bought a new phone but um it's i find pickpocketing to be pretty harmless like because um another experience i've had in medellin is uh, an armed robbery with someone um coming up to my taxi with uh, a gun and basically flashing the gun and then you know you know what to do uh it's like an international language you know someone flashes a gun you know what yeah. to do like, okay. them your valuables here you go there went another phone and um i happened to be on the way to uh get a new tourist visa which at the time you had to do every month and i um had my passport with me and i didn't initially give it to the guy but he reached into the car and patted my front pocket so he knew there was something in there and so i took it out and he he took it and then he was gone um because the way they do it is they do it at a stoplight so when traffic comes to a stop um if they've been kind of like looking for someone to rob from well kind of weaving around traffic yeah, yeah. on their motorbikes they'll basically when the traffic stops they'll you know wave their gun you give them the stuff and then they've got you know only a few seconds and then when the light changes the traffic moves they have to be you know kind of leaving otherwise they're going to draw attention to themselves so um that was much much scarier than a pickpocket and um it it was unlike anything i had experienced you know i feel like i've had a pretty safe comfortable life growing up in the united states and come from a, a upper middle class background and you know growing up in suburbs and what not going to good public schools so you know being confronted by an armed man in the street <laughs> it wasn't oh, even yeah. a dangerous Jeez. part of medellin yeah it was broad daylight you know i I wasn't in a bad area, uh, you know, so it totally took me by surprise. And it, it kind of taught me that these things can happen when you least expect it. Um, and one thing I always told my readers after that was to just, you know, give them whatever it is you've got on you and don't try and resist because that, that can lead to trouble, um, at least more trouble than you're already in. So correct. Um, yeah. that's, that's what I advise people and on my blog. Uh, and I will for the rest of my life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just, even though 
it's something that belongs to you. It's not worth your life or the possibility of getting injured. Yeah. Just like you said, it can be, it can, it can get a lot worse. You know, you can, you can put yourself in real trouble then at that point, if you try to resist and it's just stuff, you can replace it, you know, and I've been lucky enough to not be mugged at any sort of, I guess, uh, weaponry of of, of any any type. So I've been lucky Mm -hmm. for that not to happen, but yeah, I bet that was very scary. And one of the things that can happen, I don't know, kind of anywhere, I guess, you know, but just like you said, it was broad daylight, yeah. just, just kind of came out of nowhere. That's, that's really tough. Yeah. I, I had a new pass. I had to take a bus to Bogota, which was 11 hours. Uh, Cause I couldn't fly without a passport, but I had a new passport, new U S passport within two weeks. So even, it even kind of taught me that losing a passport, is not the end of the world either. So um, it's, it's I've been to 67 countries, I think, at this point. The only place I've ever experienced that kind of like our armed robbery um, was in Medellin, unfortunately. And I try not to let it take away from how much I love the city. Um, I just try and, you know, bring it up as a as just another experience I had there that um, it does happen. Unfortunately, tourists are targeted. And um, it, you don't have to go into a bad part of the city either because the thieves will come to the wealthier parts of the city where the tourists <laughs> yeah, tend to be. Yeah. So yeah. if you, if you, you know, the old advice is like, don't go down any dark alleys and that kind of stuff, which yeah, sure. Don't do that. But you need to really be aware even in the touristy parts, um, which in Medellin is El Poblado and La, La Reyes and Envigado. Um because you know they know you're there so yeah yeah well how did you feel afterwards about the city after such you know intense experience and such a scary experience were you deterred did you want to leave or did it not really affect you too much in wanting to stay that's a great question um it 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 definitely affected me and i i think i didn't realize it at the time but years later many years later i think i probably had ptsd from it oh, i yeah. definitely had a strong dislike almost triggering of, of you know motorbikes that lasted for years like i couldn't stand them um and so i had about 5 or 6 weeks left after that happened before I was planning to leave Colombia and see more of South America. And so I kind of stuck it out the rest of that time. Um, but I was relieved to leave, <laughs> to be honest. And I um, I went to Ecuador for two months and had, and I um, and then I traveled down to Peru, which I just became a big fan of Peru and I know you were there recently. Oh yeah. Ar- Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, and Uruguay. I, I saw all these places and some other countries uh, outside of Latin America and then went back to Colombia to see how I felt and I just missed it. And so I ended up, you know, living going back to continue living there even after that robbery experience. Well, that's good though, that you understood yourself, you gave yourself a break from the area. That's actually really, really important that um, I think I want listeners to understand that you don't have to like tough it out. You know, it's okay to make some changes here itinerary if something unexpected and dangerous can kind of happen. And it's not that you're a 
lazy, bad, or you know, pathetic traveler of any type, like these things happen and you have to make sure you pay attention to how you feel about it because you want your experiences after that to continue to be good. So, but that requires a certain mental, I guess, state. (laughs) And when something like that happens, goodness, yeah, that's a traumatic event. Very scary because, you know, you think about like, oh, I could die, you know, and that's a realistic thing that can happen when you travel. It, It really is because Tourists are targeted in every single city. So pickpockets, uh, muggings, those sort of things are a real threat. And so just, I like how you said, just just give them everything that, you, that, that they want. Don't fight and let them move on. Like that's, that's really the only thing you can do in that moment. Yeah, I, um, I definitely learned to appreciate like, I guess my mental health or, or like a healthy like, I'm not sure how to say this. I definitely kind of going to like this extreme end of fear and feeling like my life was threatened. I definitely began to appreciate more places where I felt more safety, more sense of personal safety. Um, Ultimately, that's part of why I ended up moving back to the U.S. Um, Even though I absolutely love my time living in Colombia and wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I start as I got a little bit older, I started to kind of miss that sense of being in my own country and knowing how things work and knowing the language and um, not feeling as though I stand out as much in terms of, you know, being uh, someone who could potentially be robbed or seen as someone rich tourist, you know? Yeah. So that was that safety was part of what led me to move back to the United States after my time in Colombia. Yeah. So how long after you went back to Columbia, did you make the move back to the United States? Like how long were you still in Columbia afterwards? Let's see. That happened in, can't remember. It's been a while now. I oh, definitely okay. spent yeah. another couple, couple, of, couple of years there. Um, I moved, I, I kind of left Columbia in 2015 to travel in Eastern Europe and yeah, yeah. then um, landed back in the U.S. and eventually made my way to Austin, Texas, uh, to kind of like start, start fresh. Yeah. Well, I mean, goodness, I can see why you want to come back to the United States. You were just like traveling for so long and being in other countries. And I can definitely understand. I'd like to think that I could be gone from the United States for a full year, but I still haven't done that. The the longest we've been gone outside the U S is six months. And by then I'm like, okay, I'm kind of ready to go back for a little while, you know, and kind of take a break because it is like a stressor on your senses. And after a while, it can be a bit overwhelming. You do want that kind of comfort of your own home country. And yeah, just like not feeling like you stand out. Just like, okay, I'm kind of normal in with everybody. And now you're in Austin, Texas. I mean, tell me about Austin and why that kind of captured your attention and why it's just like a great food city for you. I kind of feel like we... I missed the opportunity to talk about food in Colombia, but I, I oh, want to goodness. somehow try and work that in. <laughs> well, here, yeah, no, let, yeah, let's 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 rewind. Then let's talk about food about Colombia. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the time. I'm like, okay, we only have so much time left. I know. Okay, no, I love it. Like, because I love the, the food in Colombia so much. So I'm actually pretty excited that you want to talk about it. So what, uh, like, how would you describe Colombian food to people, and what were some of your favorite dishes and things that you tried? So. Colombian food, I, it, it, it's funny because I think it's 
Uh, unlike some countries, maybe like Thailand or France or Italy, you know, there's a kind of a, like a running joke that you don't go to Colombia for the food. Although I think that's changing a little bit um, as it opens up to more tourism. Uh, but the, the food is, I feel like it's pretty typical of Latin America. Like um, I was listening to one of your recent podcasts about your travels in Latin America and talking about, you know, the set menus you can get where, you know, it's a protein like fish or yeah, steak yeah. or chicken, and then you get rice and beans or maybe lentils and a soup and a little dessert, a little pastry. And that, that can all cost a couple of dollars and how amazing that is. And I, that's, that was like the bread and butter of living in <laughs> Colombia, yeah. you know, those kinds of set lunches, whether it was my Colombian roommate who would cook for me and totally spoiled me or I, or being out at a restaurant, you know, a non, non-touristy restaurant. So that, that's kind of, you know, I have, warm feelings for those kinds of meals. They're just so basic, but it's what so many people, you know, um, live off of uh, in Colombia and, and through a lot of Latin America. And uh, pollo a la plancha is like my go-to, you know, chicken, you know, I'll have some chicken and rice any day and it's cheap and it tastes good to me. And I think it's kind of, healthy-ish uh, <laughs> i certainly ate more beans living in colombia beans and lentils than i have in the rest of my life combined um so uh it it, it seems like it was hearty food um pretty common for latin america if people have been to other countries in latin america central america um there's yeah. There's a soup from Bogota that I loved. And since you spent so much time there, you you must be familiar with it. It's ajiaco, which is made oh, yeah. with shredded like oh, chicken, yes. potatoes, uh, corn. Uh, that, I love that soup. It was just so, I don't know, it was like comfort food uh, yeah, that absolutely. I really appreciated. Yeah, it's one of my wife's favorite soups of all time. It was just like you said, it's very comforting. It is like a potato soup with broth, like like chicken broth with like shredded, you know, chicken breast in there. And it sounds really basic, but it's very delicious, very flavorful. And I don't know, it's like something you can eat all the time. And when it's cold, at least in Bogota, because it can just get cloudy and then be cold like all day, it's it really warms you up. It's so delicious. I don't know. I think the the restaurants with like the, the set menu lunch, those ones, I have to say like, just like you, 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 you hit the nail on the head with like, you know, it, it can be kind of plain, you know, it's nothing super like extravagant. Like there's no special thing. Usually there might be some sort of sauce or they may do things their own way, but a lot of times it's just like a, a piece of chicken that's been on the, on the flat top grill or a piece of steak or pork. But I do have to say the ones we went to, they executed the basics of culinary cuisine better than a lot of restaurants I've been to. Like they just hit the flavor points of like, you know, of all the flavors of, you know, sweet, sour, savory, um, and umami and all those sort of things. And they all kind of work together. And I was really surprised when I was eating, um, at one that was kind of uh, by us where we stayed, it was called the El Punto and they would 
they and we went there, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 times maybe because it was like $3 a person, you know, with tip and everything. And it was just so great. And we had like fresh juices and yeah, they just did a really good job. Like when you trace, taste everything together, I'm like, they actually did excellent job. I've been to a lot of restaurants that just, I don't know, there was some sort of flavor that was missing. Like there was enough acid or maybe they didn't salt the food enough, or maybe they didn't get a good enough sear on the meat that could have made it a little bit better. And I don't know, they just did a good job. I just have to say, it's like the culinary techniques, man, like, all right, I, I can appreciate it. And the $3 meal, you know, also makes it pretty delicious too, a delicious price. Yeah, the currency exchange has definitely favored uh, the US dollar, even more so since I left in 2015 so it's a really good deal for americans to be or europeans uh to be traveling in Colombia right now yeah i had such such amazing food there like the italian food i'm still thinking about i had the best pizza of my life in, in bogota it was just phenomenal I, I can't i can't tell you how much i enjoyed everything that i had i'm actually right now i'm in the process of writing a um, just a food guide of my experience in Bogota. I did one for just Colombian restaurants and that's already up on the blog, but for all the restaurants, I don't know how they just masterfully did so many great things. I'm like, geez, they have it down. Like there is one coffee shop that had like the best croissants. Like I haven't had that great of a croissant since Paris and I just, I couldn't get enough. And they had like perfectly, you know, steamed lattes and they had Italian food. They had American food. They had a, like crazy, like modern American style barbecue too. I'm like, goodness, like what's going on? Like, where am I? And um, I know those are some recent developments in Bogota, but I'm like, okay, I could go back live there for a little bit and, you know, do some writing maybe write a book, you know, and it's really cheap to live there and just write my book and eat delicious food all day. I don't know. That's the plan. I think that'd be a good one. <laughs> I, um, I'm not as familiar with Bogota as Medellin, uh, Medellin but um, I've seen how uh, it's become kind of, it, it's, I don't know, it's it's risen on the international stage in terms of uh, the fine dining and some of the top chefs uh, in Colombia having restaurants in Bogota and even the world's 50 best restaurants having um, events in Bogota, which I think is wonderful because Colombian cuisine is easily overlooked um, versus like Mexican or, or Peruvian now. So I like the attention that Colombia has been getting um, as far as uh, the fine dining restaurants go as well. Yeah, I uh, we went to El Chato, which is Right now in Latin America, it was on the world's 50 best list for Latin America. It's number five. And they did a really good job. Like it was a superb meal with some very unique flavors and things I really wasn't expecting. And they really highlight those Colombian ingredients in a way that, I don't know, it just was magical. It was like they sprinkled magic in the kitchen. All of a sudden, this thing I've never seen before tastes like just something I've never experience. So it was, it was really, really, really well done. So yeah, let's move on to Austin now real quick. I had the pleasure of eating some barbecue in Austin. I didn't get to try too, too much, but um, it was definitely a wonderful experience. So what are like, why, why Austin? Like why did Austin catch your attention? And with food, like why makes, what makes it a good food city? So uh, living in Medellin, I got used to kind of spring like weather all year round. It's 
it's nicknamed the city of the eternal spring. And so I didn't, when I moved back to the U.S., I, I'm originally from the Northeast. I didn't want to have a cold winter. So I was looking towards the Southern states and I, I had a couple of friends in Austin. I'd been hearing good things that it was a entrepreneurial city that um, it was, uh, I, I liked the size of it, you know, about a million residents in the, in the main city area, um, that it was growing quickly, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. Um, and, and so all those things kind of appealed to me. And so I came to a, a conference in early 2016, actually it's April 2016, and it was downtown and the weather was just gorgeous, uh, gorgeous spring weather. And I, it was, it was an easy sell for me. It was easy to like the city. I loved that there was um, like a hike and bike path uh, around Lady Bird Lake downtown. And I just found that really um, appealing. And so within a few weeks, I had left my Airbnb and moved into an apartment downtown. And I had no furniture because I had sold everything in 2007. I had no car. I was really starting from scratch. I just had the clothes in my my backpack, <laughs> essentially. And um, it was kind of fun to start over. You know, I bought new furniture. I just slowly started to get to know the city. Um, and I've it's been seven years now, and I've just really enjoyed living here. Um, and... and Along with it being one of the fastest growing cities in the United States, the restaurant scene has really exploded in the time I've been living here as well. I, and that reminds me a little bit of living in Medellin where the city was opening up to, to more tourism and, and more restaurants were opening and greater diversity of food available. I've seen that same thing happen in Austin, which has which really been wonderful. Um, it just gives the residents more options in terms of the kinds of food you can eat. And um, I think that's good for everybody. Yeah. I, I love barbecue. I love like Texas style barbecue prize, my absolute favorite. So I have to ask which one in Austin is like your favorite barbecue place. Well, that's a, that's a really tough question. I know. I, yes. um, <laughs> Not trying to start any feuds, okay? Just trying to see when I go back where I should be trying some more. Um, I would say that, well, everybody knows Franklin. And I went there last year for the first time yes. and loved it. it. It did require three hours waiting in line. And that's not a not a small amount of time. So it's not something I would do regularly. But now that I've been to what many consider the best place, um, I feel like I'm better able to judge everywhere else. And and there's definitely um, similar quality barbecue brisket that you can get at other places in Austin that, that don't have that kind of a, a line. Um, one of the ones I really like right now is a food truck called Leroy and Lewis, and they are in a, a patio, the patio of Cosmic Coffee in South Austin. And they, um, one of the things they specialize in, which I think you'll like, is beef cheek. And Ooh, it's, yeah. it's really delicious. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and 
they also do um, a half pound burger that's made with 50% um, high quality premium brisket and 50% ground beef that it tastes like they've like captured barbecue in, in a hamburger form. It's, it's just like a next level burger that I think everybody should try. <laughs> and yeah. so that's, <laughs> that's Leroy and Lewis barbecue. Um, they're, they're doing really well. And um, there's a, a newer barbecue spot that I just tried for the first time in January called KG barbecue. And they're in East Austin and it's an Egyptian man who came to Austin uh, I think in 2011 or 12 for the first time and tried brisket and just was blown away by how good it tasted. And so he kind of went on this journey. He went back to Cairo where he worked and he started trying to self-teach himself how to do barbecue, like central Texas barbecue um, from reading from Aaron Franklin's book on, on cooking brisket. And, and basically he couldn't find the same kind of beef over there i believe or he just wasn't able to um, accomplish the kind of barbecue that he experienced in, in austin so he ended up moving to austin and working with all these different pit masters and really learning the the craft um here and and then he opened um last year his first food truck and it's what what makes it unique is that it, it's got all these Egyptian um, influences that you know you're not going to find other Texas barbecue spots, and I think people are finding that really appealing and interesting, and uh, so he's doing really well right now. All right, it makes me want to go back just for like barbecue. <laughs> Actually, I, <Yes. laughs> I, I when we were there, we went to uh, Franklin Barbecue for sure because. And I mean, it, it's legendary. It has a notoriously long line and I don't know it. It was worth it for me. I, I loved everything we had, but the thing that I loved the most was actually the sausage. Like their, their sausage still like haunts me. Okay. That sounds weird, but <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I dream about this, this smoked sausage. <laughs> I don't care how it sounds. It was so delicious. It's so perfect. <laughs> And I guess like they don't make it in house, but they have a, a, a sausage maker that makes it for them specifically. And it has some beef heart in it, which is kind of cool. And I don't know, just like the flavor combos, the snap was just, I still think about it. Like, geez, I want to go back just, just for that sausage. And we went to, um, what was the other one? Um, Micklethwaite, I think is the name of the place. Yes. Um, and we had like beef ribs there that were like really good. Just like, Fred Flintstone style ribs, you know, huge, delicious. Um, yeah. And uh, Texas barbecue is definitely an experience for people. So it's not, I don't know, like there are a few things in life I'm very, very picky about. Coffee is one of them and barbecue is like the other thing, like, and steak, like, I don't know. I don't really order steak that often. If someplace has barbecue on the menu and it's not like a barbecue like place, I don't, I don't get it. So if they have like ribs or barbecue ribs or they have slices of barbecue brisket, most of the time I always skip because I'm picky about those things. And Texas style barbecue is where it's at. I mean, I just love the, the moist fatty brisket parts. Oh, the best, the best. <laughs> what are, um, just real quick, what are a few other shout outs to some other restaurants in Austin that you really, really love? 
I'm a huge fan of Hestia, which is a live fire restaurant. They cook everything over fire. It's run by um, two chefs who have, they've done very well here in Austin. Um, they have, a, I don't know, a half dozen restaurants at this point. And Hestia, it just blew me away in terms of the the quality of the food and also the, I don't know if they still do this. My first time there was um, before the pandemic and I haven't sadly been back since, which kills me. But at the time, the some of the the plates were delivered by chefs. So the chefs would come out of the kitchen and they would be bringing the food to the table. And I just love that concept um, and just that opportunity to interact and ask questions uh, or talk with, you know, people that are back there doing the cooking versus the, you know, what we're used to with usually talking with the waiters. I'm a huge sucker for like live fire cooking. Like, so I'm like, I'll go just for that restaurant. I'll fly down to Austin just to go there now. <laughs> Cause I'm hooked. Yeah. When you have hardwood, like real wood, you make your own coals, or you're cooking over live fire like that. It's just a whole different like flavor. I love it so much. Goodness. So we have time for one more question. Something I wanted to ask you from the very beginning. What is your favorite like episode or food moment with that Anthony Bourdain was in? Oh boy. Um <laughs> I know, you know like a clear left field. <laughs> <laughs> that is tough because I, I feel like I followed him around the world. Um one of my favorite episodes, I think, would have to be his Nashville episode. Um, I'm trying to remember if it was Parts Unknown um, or his other one, his other show. But he did a, an episode in Nashville that just seemed just, it just oozed cool. Like he, um, he went, like he had, spent some of the time with this lead singer in a band. And at the end of the episode, he was like at a house party where the band was performing. Yeah. Yeah. Live music being such a big part of Nashville. Um, it just seemed really cool. And I, I don't know. I, maybe I've been watching that because I've gone to Nashville a couple of times in the last few years. So it's sort of like been part of my like motivation, to like to go there. But uh, I, I, yeah, it's not particularly exotic, but I would say that that it just it kind of embodied this like rock and roll feeling that seemed to always he carried with him and it was part of his persona. And I just really enjoyed that episode. Absolutely. I uh I love all this stuff. Like mine would be like when he was in Charleston and he tries Waffle House for the first time for me was a sublime <laughs> moment to watch because I love Waffle House. I'm a very unbiased eater. I don't care if it's fast food. I don't care if it's a chain. I don't care if it's in someone's house and I'm eating the delicious meal. If it's good food to me, it's good food. And I'll recommend it to people. But when he tried Waffle House, cause I love it. So I love Waffle House so much. Um, he just, it was just like the whole experience. The music they were playing was like the song from like chef's table. And it was just like this, it was it was just beautiful. Well done. If you haven't seen it, you can find a clip of it on YouTube for sure. But yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Anthony Bourdain, thank you so much for being an amazing influence. So that is uh that's it, Dave. We are at the end here. If people want to follow you, read all the stuff, check out your adventures around the world. Where's the best place for them to do that? That would be at feastio.com where I'm 
trying to ever publish more stories. And then my Instagram account, to be the second best place, is Fisio with an underscore at the end. Dave is such a seasoned traveler. He has been to so many different places. And wow, like I am inspired to continue doing this and blogging and doing podcasts and trying to inspire all of you because goodness, like the world is so huge. There are so many different things that we can try and experience in this life. And I think Dave is a real testament to following your passions and doing what you want and to experience the world as it is. And going about it through food is one of the easiest ways you can experience a culture and to grow as a person. So travel more often and definitely check out uh, Dave's blog, Feastio, if you haven't done it already. But uh, in the show notes of this page, we are going to have uh, some resources of the different places that we've kind of talked about and resources that Dave wants you to have, the things that he thinks will be helpful based on our talk. So go to nomadicfoodist.com slash feastio, that's nomadicfoodist.com slash F-E-A-S-T-I-O for those amazing resources that Dave wants you to have. If you liked this episode, please hit that subscribe button so that every single week you get a brand new episode from an experienced traveler and food obsessed individual who wants to share their stories with you. Thank you so much again for listening and remember, eat with an adventurous heart no matter where you go. Oh, 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 o